You're probably, as we get into uh, what we're going to be speaking about this morning, you're probably going to think, well, this is deja vu. We were already here last week uh, because we're, we're actually revisiting uh, the passage that we looked at last week, and I, I want to come at it in a, in a slightly different way. We're looking at, again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when darkness closes in. Uh, let's read it. We're not going to read all the, all the words that we did last week, but, but this will give the thumbnail of where we are. Paul, speaking to the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers, and that is something that Joanne legitimately and I can legitimately say, say of you. We, we really do thank God for you. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. In spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit, The word of the Lord rang out from you. In every place, your faith in God has gone out. How you turn to God from idols and to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's just pray as we we enter in. And and Lord, so we, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. When we were far off, you said that you came to us, not coming to us because we were worthy, but because you loved us. And you came to forgive and make us your children. So, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you will just open up the things that you want us to hear this morning, that we will be people that will be changed by by you. And we pray that in the name of Christ. Amen. Several years ago, with, with a few others, Joanna or I had the privilege to, to go to a remote part of, of Africa to provide educational, and the group I was with uh, were providing educational and medical assistance. And one night, these Mzugu, the, the white-skinned, went, decided that we, we would go into the village for dinner because it had been a tough number of weeks, and we just wanted to go in and get part of the village. And so before going, we were given very strict instructions of what we should do and not do. Among them, the instructions, if you're a husband and wife or a couple, do not hold hands because that was something you absolutely did not do. And as we entered the village, it was uh, we had good receptivity, people were friendly. But when dinner was done, darkness had closed in. And as we headed back, the mood and the crowd was decidedly different. The night was pitch black, no no sky uh, filled with stars. It was pitch black, and just the shadowy light of the torches from that illuminated just a small section. And adding to the tension were people that now looked at us, many with hostility and a sense of suspicion. A few called out. Words that they definitely wanted us to know that we were not welcome in that place. And adding to the tension, there was a married couple who had ignored the instruction that they were given to not hold hands, which is likely why the rocks started to fly. 
they gave warning that the practices that we seem to represent were very unwelcome. They were not wanting these at all. The villagers were threatened, mainly due to the foolishness of these two. They were doing something they shouldn't have done, but they, we represented to them something that threatened them. We were quite different from what they understood and what they wanted to know. And in a similar fashion, the, the passage that we just read the, this morning, it wasn't unlike a lot of that because what the Thessalonians experienced were friends and neighbors that all of a sudden had become radically changed, radically different. And, and they couldn't, the Thessalonians couldn't wrap their mind around that. Weeks before, their lives looked no different than those around. They were engaging in the same practices. They were pursuing the same lifestyles, serving the same gods. And then all of that, it just changed. They just exchanged it for something new, something that the Thessalonians didn't understand. And the difficulty was, is you would expect those living in Thessalonica would understand that. They would just take it in stride because, after all, they welcomed change. Change was a good thing for them. They had a wide diversity of belief, and they were tolerant before tolerant was in vogue. For some, Dionysus was the god of choice. For others, Zeus or Apollo. It was just choose the god of your liking that fit your lifestyle. You wanted power? You bowed to Zeus. You wanted good harvest? You followed Demeter. You wanted debauchery? You followed Dionysus. And, and if the Greek and Roman gods didn't work, that's okay. You just chose one of the Egyptian gods. You would go Iris or Sepphoris. Or even if you wanted, you could choose the god of the Jews because the Thessalonians just embraced all of them. It was tolerance for all, which made sense because Thessalonica, the city, was a major port. And so all the people of the world would come through Thessalonica to then go to the rest of the world, rest of Greece. But there was one belief that they were not about to tolerate. And based on what it offered, that seemed to make no sense. This new belief, it didn't enslave it freed. It, it didn't seek revenge. It forgave. It didn't control. It served. And rather than oppress, it loved. Simply put, this new belief was unlike anything they had ever heard. They couldn't make sense of it. And in that, there was no petulant God that had to be pleased. There was no money that had to be paid, no religious ceremony that had to be performed. Instead, it just offered a new life. But it was new, and it didn't fit. Surely you would think this message of love and forgiveness and a risen Christ would set the city on fire with excitement, but those weren't the fires that came. Far from it. Because what we're told is the city actually erupted in a riot. The message was clear. We embrace all, but to embrace all, we would need to eliminate one. And what followed were persecutions and arrests and the dangers causing 
Paul to flee, he had to get out of the city. We're told in 1 Thessalonians uh, and in 2 Thessalonians there were persecutions and tribulations. There were sufferings. There were tribulations. There was much affliction. And then it says in verses 14 to 16 in chapter 2, it says, You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing that Christians suffered in Judea, which meant there were beatings and imprisonments and, yes, even death. So those that turned from a lifestyle that they were used to, all of a sudden were under intense persecution. Far more than just bad-mouthing and that we might have experienced, you know, the sticks and stones for those of us that, that uh, call Christ our Lord. This was high payment, high price for their faith. For those that they used to call neighbors and friends. Now people that were driven from their homes, now people that were let go from their jobs, now people that were torn from relationships, now people that endured physical and emotional beatings, and as I just said, Second Thessalonians tell us, and yes, the loss of life. Okay. So, how are we to apply this historic Walk through like that was then. That, that that's that's history. But what happens if this history isn't belonging to back then? What if it speaks to times and events that are happening today? Like Christians living in part of the world where following Christ isn't just something that is accepted as everything else. Like the Indian family whose home was set on fire, their father was beaten, her daughter now in critical, his father, daughter now in critical condition because extremists disapproved how these Christians wanted to bury their two-year-old child. Or the Egyptian children who watched their father brutally murdered in front of them because he refused to deny Christ. Or in Nigeria, or Niger, or North Korea, or China, and countless other places in the world where churches are closed, Christians are killed, and believers are fleeing for their lives. I could go on, but I think you get the point. We don't need to go to far-off places to look at places of intolerance. We can see the same thing in the West, where increasingly we're starting to see headlines like, parents are barred from a school board meeting because they questioned a motion to replace the terms biological sex and biological gender. Or florists and bakers and other business owners are fined and made to attend sensitivity training as a result of standing firm in their faith. Or a Canadian couple not long ago who lost custody of their foster children because they refused to lie that the Easter Bunny was real. Even the courts did reverse that decision. But out there is not the only place where Christian faith is under attack. Because increasingly, the Christian faith is coming under attack from the very pulpits on which, similar on which I stand. Consider what a one-time very prominent pastor's assertion was, where he says, quote, Given enough time, everybody will turn to God. And find in themselves the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart. And even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. 
to him, the whole idea of eternal judgment or that God, God must deal with sin is incompatible with what he wants to believe. So what does he do? He just discards the possibility that there could even be a hell. But his dismissal begs the question, then, then, then why the cross? Why the whip? Why the nails? Why, if such a loving God put your son through such things, if everything eventually just comes out in the wash? But the sad part is that many within the Christian community are starting to buy what he was selling. Or listen to a, another megachurch pastor statement. Belief in Jesus as the only way to heaven is insanity. I wonder what words this particular pastor is going to say when he stands before the one who spoke those words of insanity. My point is this. We dare not relegate the words that we hear in 1 Thessalonians spoken by Paul to something that is a past historical walkthrough. Rather, it is, what is he saying to his word to us right now? Not that we fit the scripture into a context in the past, but doesn't apply just as powerfully to our present, then we don't understand what the word of God is all all about. Because the signs we are increasingly seeing are not just one-offs that will pass. And with it, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are giving the words of encouragement and wisdom and instruction that we need to have as we walk through times that are changing. That Christians are not called to lay low until the, the storm passes and everything gets back on solid ground again. Instead, we are called to live as light bearers in the darkness. Some will love the light and some will hate what they have to see. And how do we do that? Well, we do that beginning with what we're told in verse 3. I remember your work produced by faith, your labor produced by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. And what Paul is saying is simply this. People, get your faith right. Quit playing church. Get your faith right. What do you really believe? What are you really committed to? People, you've been transformed by Jesus, not the church, not a fellowship group, not a new teaching, but Jesus. It's our faith is all about Jesus. If this church or any church you would happen to listen to or go to, if it ceases to hold up Jesus that you hear again and again and again every week, then leave that church. Because our faith is all about Jesus. These Thessalonians that took a new life, they were not good people. They were not improved people. They were not enhanced people. They weren't people that listened to a message that says, says, just do this and you'll be better. Just believe this and you'll get more riches. Nonsense. Our faith is about a crucified, risen Christ. But it's a faith that has feet. It is not a faith that sits in a, in a seat and doesn't engage their faith in where life is lived. And if you go to some other countries, you'll quickly understand the society is structured very differently than ours. Yet, too often it seems that the Western church is very similar to what we often see in other parts of the world. 
I'm speaking of these places where men hold the place of greatest importance. In essence, they are the male lions in the culture. They're men who sit in prominent places debating the issues of the day. They're talking and roaring and lying still getting fat. Well, the women, the lionesses, do the real work. They're the ones that make the kill. They feed the family. They take care of the necessities. Very often, they earn the age. The women doing, not just talking. Acting, not just theorizing. And I think this is why Paul zeroes in and pays special attention to link faith with visible evidence of faith. Faith that's lived. And too often in the Western church, many sit in the back row of faith, acting like male lions, sporting trophy case manes, large manes, and roaring to impress with inconsequential talk, but changing little in the world around them, in their families. When as believers, we've been called to risk out and to be a people of active Faith. People who are known for delivering a better product or service than others in the same industry. Of being a better teacher because of Christ. To demonstrate a higher level of integrity. To do what others often aren't willing to do. To live out Christ as we coach, as we neighbor as we deal with things that are unfair, not not spouting the same rhetoric with everyone else around us. Because Jesus calls us to be a reflection of him, putting our faith to work and being ready to share Christ as opportunity presents. Now, that's not always easy. But, but I think there are many ways that we can do this, that people have such an image of who Jesus is that we need to break the image. And that, that may come just simply by taking a, a, a link to The Chosen or, or a DVD of The Chosen and passing to the, passing to the neighbors and saying, look at Jesus in a different way. Quit, quit putting the church around Jesus so he is meek and mild and let them see Jesus that actually wants to transform lives. And I'm going to say it strongly if you haven't heard it strongly enough already. The Western church is suffering because, I'm going to say this loudly, because of men who sit back and let the woman take, women take the spiritual lead while we just sit and talk. And by this, I am in no way discounting the great things that God is doing through women But men, it is our time to stand up, to run after Christ with everything we are. If we want our faith to come alive, then simply we must be the people to make a difference. We must be the difference. If we want our families to have a real transforming faith, a faith that is real, a faith that stands when things get tough, then we need to give our families the picture of people who are pursuing Christ, that we're engaged, that we're in love, that we're following. 
If we want our children to experience more than just a parroted faith, then they need to see us unafraid to be free in worship, unafraid to let them know Jesus as our number one priority. Not our wealth, or our sports, or our work, but Him. And in that, giving them and those around a faith to pursue and a purpose to live for, a life of passion and purpose lived for Jesus. Men, it's time to step up. Not to say I came to Christ, but to be people who live Christ. Of course it applies for women as well, but men, I think we specifically have settled for passivity. Because when we don't, we allow our children to be inoculated from a Christ-centered, faith-transforming life. And while you may spend ample time teaching them how to hit a ball, build some Lego, or catch a fish, we give them just enough Jesus to be nice. Just enough Jesus to be good. Just enough Jesus to squeeze into the back pocket of our lives. Just enough Jesus to walk away from when something more appealing comes. But that brings me to the second point I want to make, and that is what Paul says, that you may remember your labor motivated by love. Because the truth is this, we can't change the picture without first changing our heart. I I, I can't say I'm going to resolve to be one of these faith-filled Christians. No, it's not going to happen unless you actually have the heart changed. It's far more than reprioritizing, just doing something different. Because the duty of doing the right thing, it won't last. But work that's done out of love ceases to be work. Rather than depleting energy, it restores it. As Paul repeatedly makes clear, the loudest demonstration of our faith is love understood to be received And then love that is given out. Active, aggressive, connecting, forgiving, embracing, gritty love. And if our lives are not characterized by love, then we need to take a hard look at who or what stands at the center of our faith. Because when people, when Christ is the center of our faith... Love has to be the outflow. It's the only way that can happen. And it has to beg the question, why is it that we so easily say we love our sports, we love our woodwork, we love our hobbies, we love our service, but we're so tongue-tied when it comes to speaking about our love for Christ? Paul is saying this, that your labor, which comes as a result of your love for Christ, that will be transforming First you, and then others. Because that's what makes faith come alive. So what does that practically mean for us? Uh, We can talk concepts. It means if Christ is going to be first priority in our lives, that we need to come back to him and understand that he needs to be our first love. We need to examine our lives and throw off the things that get in the way that take other loves, take center place. 
And isn't that what John says in Revelation? He says to the church, he says, I've got one thing against you. You've, you've left your first love. You're doing all the activities. You've got all the programs in place. You've got the, all, the, all the appearance of something good. It's not coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of duty. You need to come back to your place of first love. I think that's one of the reasons the chosen is so good because it, it gives us a view of Christ. It's not scripture, I get that. But it gives us a view of Christ that upsets the way we often see things that are sanitized Jesus. And we should want a new love look at Jesus. That he gives us a fresh experience of his love that we can look at him with childlike eyes. And how? Well, first, by acknowledging how far we have strayed from our first love and then asking, asking him to put us back in the place that we want to be. Asking the Holy Spirit to do a fresh work in our hearts. To submit to the Holy Spirit his power that will transform us. God's Spirit doing the work and our spirit bowing and giving control to him. And as we do, we need to do the practical to immerse ourselves again into the, into the Gospels as if we have never read the words before. And if it, if it calls for it, read them in a different translation. Look at something like the New Living Bible, which is a great contemporary way to look, look at things. Look at through different eyes. And don't rush. Just linger. Don't, don't try to read five chapters, just, just read a few verses and just dwell on those things. Just linger. Because when you do, you will open yourself up to be amazed to do the third thing that Paul says, and that is, I remember your endurance inspired by hope. Now, don't forget what Paul has just been writing about at the beginning of this chapter. Saying, people, get your hope right. This faith that he's talking about isn't lived in some hallmark, life is good, all is happy Christian experience. It's lived in the places of beatings and whippings and killings and tribulation. Get your hope right. How do I hope when things look so bad? Because our hope is in the one that says, I am your hope. Their lives have been turned upside down. Some have lost family. Some have lost friends. Some have lost possessions. Some have lost life. And that loss can't be made up for with nice, easy words. Because faith like this, hope like this, has lived in the hard times. This gospel didn't come simply with words. Not about just words. It's not about your bank account will be better, your lifestyle will be better, your friends will be richer. It is the gospel came to you with power and the Holy Spirit, that the power of the Lord is able to carry you through and to make sense of what you can't make sense of. But that means this. Jesus says, I'm not a God who stands alongside the other gods in your life. I won't stand alongside Zeus or Demeter or Aphrodite. I am God 
alone. I won't stand as a God amongst your hobbies and your sports and your privileges. None of those things being bad. But when they occupy the place that the Lord is to take, then we don't understand what it means to live by the power of the Lord. We need to understand the hope that Paul speaks of. It's a hope that we're told it's because of our resurrected Lord. And we're told in the end of the chapter, it's a resurrected Lord that says, it's not only resurrected, he's a resurrected Lord that is coming again. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour on which the Lord may come. This is not a faith by adoption. This is not a faith because your church is good, your family is good, your spouse believes it. The question is this as I close. This morning, as our world has been disrupted and turned upside down, as the darkness closes in, and some of you I know have experienced greater darkness than others, God's question of all of us is this. Is your faith right? Is your heart right? Is your hope right? Not just for the the time that the pandemic lasts and hopefully we get back to normal, but, but life prepared and ready first and foremost above all things, ready for eternity. And then an eternity that is lived out fully now. This morning as I, I bring basically my last in-depth look at Scripture with you, though you get me next week, but... I I cannot leave it without asking you the question, do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Because nothing is more important than that. That relationship is yours by simply confessing your sin, honestly confessing your sin, and then accepting his forgiveness that he will make you new. To become a child of God. Most of you listening have done that. Your question and my question is a different one, but it's very similar. Get your faith right. Get your love right. Get your hope right. Does Jesus get first love? Not in, not in words that we spout, but with feet that are living it. First love. So those around will see our faith, and they will know our love. And one day in heaven, we can say they can join with us in celebrating our hope that we showed to them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the words of the cross, that it is finished, that you paid it all, that we might know you. We might come into relationship with you and live with you forever in eternity. That our faith is in you, our love is in you, and Lord, ultimately our hope is in you. And we pray that in the name of the Lord. Amen.